Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Acts. And I don't know if you know, but the book of Acts means Acts of the Apostles. So the book of Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. So if you would like to follow along, there are some Bibles in the chairs uh, under your seat. We also um, invite you to look in your own Bibles, uh, Bible apps that you might have. It's going to be shown on the screen. And I find it really helpful personally to look at scripture from different versions to get a fuller context or fuller meaning of it. So if you're reading from a version that's different than what we're reading, that's not a bad thing. Just follow along and kind of figure out the different uh, words and phrases that are used there. So if you can turn to chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Our culture is one of hero worshipers. It's 
interesting. There's no football game this weekend, which explains why some of us are here, I suppose. <laughs> but there is so much about us that admire people who are famous. And sometimes many of the people who are famous are famous only because they're famous. If we know a most valuable player personally, or an All-American, or if we've had our picture taken with Russell Wilson, or with Gabby Douglas, that's special. I have in my Facebook information a picture of me standing next to Tim Foster, who won a gold medal in the Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia, and I am wearing his medal. It's also true in the body of Christ that we have a tendency to be hero worshipers. Throughout my entire ministry, people have come up to me breathlessly telling me about the latest person they have listened to or seen on television or books or tapes that they have gotten. They're all excited about them. I remember some years ago when Hal Lindsey was a very popular person. He was going to be here at Mercer Island Covenant one weekend for another matter, and I kept getting phone calls all week long. Is it true that Hal Lindsey is going to be at Mercer Island Covenant? It started to get under my skin. And so I would say, well, yes, I understand he's going to be here. Well, what time is he preaching? Well, he's not preaching. He's not preaching? Why is he coming? Finally, in irritation and demonstrating my lack of sanctity, I said, I guess he's heard of me. <laughs> and the phone went dead before I had a chance to explain. So all over Seattle, there are people saying, that guy has got a major ego problem, I'll tell you. Sometimes our admiration even borders on idolatry. If a person speaks on any subject, they're widely quoted as though they couldn't make a mistake in what they have to say. And Bible personalities suffer the same adulation. Moses, David, John, Peter, big shots, big names. They are big people. They're VIPs. And sometimes we feel like little people like nobodies. Now we know that a comparison heart is sinful. We know that such persons are only as great as they allow the Holy Spirit who fills them to allow them to be. The same Holy Spirit that desires to fill us and use us in the building of the kingdom. But our place of service may not have the same visibility as others. And so we feel like second or third class citizens of the kingdom of God. God sees no big people and no little people. But sometimes even theologians have written concerning biblical characters and made them larger than they really are. The Apostle Paul. John Donne wrote, Wheresoever I open St. Paul's epistles, I meet not words but thunder. Universal thunder. 
thunder that passes through all the world. Nobody's ever said that of my preaching. (laughs) Paul would have laughed and then praised God. But he was a big man in his own world. And in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us the things that made him really stand out in his world. There's a whole list of them. Ritual, circumcised on the eighth day. Relationships of the people of Israel. Respectability, the tribe of Benjamin, one of the best of them all. Race, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, tracing his family tree back to Abraham. Religion, Pharisee of the Pharisees. Reputation, zeal is persecuting the church. Righteousness, blameless under the law. Wow, that's a big man. But then just a couple of verses later in Philippians chapter 3, Paul sees himself not as a big man any longer, for he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now whatever happened to this man who had such a singular focus And was such power in the days of the new early testament church. Well, we read it. Julie read us that story. It's the Damascus Road experience. If you're acquainted with the book of Acts, you know that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first deacon of the church, was martyred. And it says that on that day a great persecution arose against the church that was in Jerusalem. And they were scattered everywhere except the apostles. The big guys didn't go. It's the little people that went. And then it says, and those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so some of these people had fled the persecution in Jerusalem as far as Damascus. There they had preached the gospel and a group of believers had begun to form finally getting the attention of the Apostle Paul, who at that time was named Saul, and he was going to stamp them out. And so he got letters of authority, John Doe warrants of arrest to persecute the church. And he was on his way to Damascus to carry out the threats when he had this amazing experience. And on the Damascus road, Saul learned that he had to become aware, he had to be conscious of the body of Christ. He needed to see himself as part of Christ's body, the church, not a spectator and not a self-appointed critic. And those are a couple of lessons that we need to know and continue to learn as churches. We need to know, first of all, that to touch the followers of Jesus is to touch Christ himself. Remember when Jesus confronted Saul on that road, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul was not even thinking of Jesus. Jesus, he had dismissed as kind of a great fraud. He was out to stamp out the misguided followers of Jesus to do everything he could to stamp out this sect, which was a threat to the Hebrew church. Why do you persecute me? Saul wasn't even thinking of Jesus. 
But he learned that to attack Christ was to attack the body, and to attack his body was to attack Christ. Sometimes I think the church of Jesus Christ needs to go back and learn this very basic lesson. So often we spend so much of our energies denigrating, criticizing, judging other people who differ from us in some of their fine points of belief, but who nevertheless are followers of Jesus Christ. That's not our place, folks. We are not called to be critics. We are called to celebrate the fact that even we can be a part of his body, the church. And to touch the followers of Jesus is to touch Christ himself. Every so often, someone will approach me and say, have you read so-and-so? Yes, I have. What do you think of that person? And I'll say, why do you ask that? And it's really, it's really an opening for them to tell me why they don't like that person at all. And they'd like to enlist me in their cause of being critics of that individual. But to attack those who believe is to attack Christ. Whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's a scene from the last judgment, for heaven's sakes. Did Jesus say that because he was a humanitarian or because he felt sorry for people that we may denigrate or put down? No, but he does because he is in them. They are a part of his body. Why are we to do good to all men? especially to those who belong to the family of God. For our reputations, to feel good, to win friends, or to gather people who are like us together? No, because we are part of his one body. Saul never forgot that question of the Lord. Saul, why do you persecute me? He never again forgot that the church was Christ's body. And that fact governed his relationship with all the churches he had founded. Sometimes people have said to me that they would really like to be a part of a true New Testament church. And my response is, I don't want to be a part of a New Testament church. I know what they mean, but the New Testament churches were really messed up. You read about the church in Galatia, for goodness sakes. They had enough problems that it could have split the church 14 ways from Sunday. I don't want to be that kind of a church. I don't want to be a part of a church that is recognizing that we are a part of the body of Christ. Paul never forgot that. He had compassion for the confused. He loved the unloving. He cared for the indifferent, even the harsh and the judgmental who took pride and delight in the fact that Paul was in prison and attacked him. He said, nevertheless, Christ is being preached. If you go out into the parking lot this morning after church and carelessly slam just one finger in the door, you got nine more. What's the problem? <laughs> Except that that one finger, even if it's the little one, is a part of your body. 
and your entire body is going to feel the pain. Or, to take a positive example, there's a young couple in this church that just got engaged. Have you ever seen a girl when she just got her diamond? Oh, it's so hot in here. (laughs) The whole body glows. The whole future is bright because of a little tiny bit of epidermis is covered by a ring. We need to see the implications of this fact in our lives together to have true body consciousness here at Mercer Island Covenant Church. Many of you know that I was pastor here for many years. Many of you know that since I left being pastor here, there have been all kinds of changes, many of which I don't like. Tough. It's the body of Christ. It is not my place to sit in the seat of the judgment or to be critical or to downcast. It is my part to celebrate the fact that we are one in the bonds of love. There are all kinds of reasons why changes take place. And I may not understand those reasons, but then that may be faulty understanding. Paul never forget. He also learned that to be touched by Christ was to be touched by his body, the church. You see, in the kingdom of God, there are no lone rangers. Acts chapter 9, verse 6. You will be told what you must do. Why didn't Jesus just tell him? Why did he tell him, you will be told? Waiting is so hard. And he had to wait in the dark, in this instance, for three days. But Jesus does not give direction apart from his body, the church. That smacks of individualism. And that's already a problem for our culture and our society too much. So Paul is led to this house on Straight Street. And for three days he prays in the darkness and he waits And he doesn't even know what he's waiting for. That's tough. And then into this drama, this true drama, comes a little guy, Ananias. He's only mentioned two times in all of Scripture. Here and in Acts chapter 22 when Paul's giving his testimony. He just mentions it. Ananias. Who is he... To go and bring a message to Saul or Paul. This little guy to the big guy. I have a friend who has rather colorful descriptions sometimes. And he referred to Ananias as he was such a little guy he didn't amount to a half a hallelujah. (laughs) Why didn't Jesus just tell Saul what to do? Because Saul wanted Ananias to have the chance to touch him. For Jesus. Simply referred to as a disciple. But then. God wanted to use him. 
God wants to show his life in earthly expression in any person who belongs to him, including us. We may have inferiority complex. We may be genuinely inferior. But the fact of the matter is, if we by new birth in Jesus Christ are part of his body, if he lives within us, then he wants to do his work in our hearts and our lives. I was thinking this week of of some chains of events that have taken place that I am aware of within this congregation. I recall an engineer, quiet man, quiet man, who had incredible impact upon a test pilot for Boeing. The test pilot's family had an incredible impact upon somebody that had rafted their boat next to theirs upon Roach Harbor. That impact spread to the captain of a University of Washington research ship. And that spread on to another salesman. And on and on and on. And I can give you the names if you want them because they're celebrated in my, in my memory. They're celebrated because while none of these were big shots or important or VIP as far as the kingdom is concerned. They were, because they were part of the body of Christ. That's hard for us to understand and remember, really get a hold of in our individualistic culture. I read something very interesting that I shared with you many years ago. Michael Harper wrote in one of his essays, the kind of society most of us live in seems to have lost altogether the capacity to be truly community. The whole emphasis of society is so to organize the life that you need no one else. And so we have what looks like deep loneliness of modern man with all the psychological disorder associated with it and the anonymity of life with all its frustrations and dullness. Then he illustrates it in a rather interesting way. Just think about the development of the dance over past centuries. The community-style barn dancing and the gay Gordons type of dance were once popular, where you mixed your partners and shared your own life with the whole community. Then there was the ballroom dancing, where you picked your own partners and stayed with them just two people in a world of their own. But the modern dance does not even encourage partners. You are virtually dancing on your own. Like modern society, you have been atomized into loneliness and I'm afraid often despair. But that is not the body of Christ. To touch one another is to touch Christ himself. To be touched by Christ is to be touched by one another. And to serve Christ is to touch our brothers and sisters. What were the characteristics of Ananias that made him useful in touching Saul for Christ? 
I think there were three characteristics that arrive out of that story. One is, he had a fellowship with God so close that when God called him by name, he heard. God for Ananias was not, in case of emergency, break glass. He had a daily, moment-by-moment experience with God. He did not divide life into the sacred or the secular kind of a spiritual schizophrenia that I see so often in our society today and so often among church people. I've had businessmen tell me that, well, that's the way I run my business. That, that, that's not the church. You understand, Pastor. I mean, it's, it's, there is no such schizophrenia in the body of Christ. There should not be. Secondly, not only did he walk with God in such intimacy that he heard God call him, But he had the kind of relationship that was honest enough that he could level with God. He didn't play games with God. When God says to Ananias, Ananias, I want you to go see Saul, Ananias said, hold it a minute. Wait a minute. We've heard about this man. We know that he has come with John Doyle warrants to carry us off into captivity and arrest. And the Lord said to him, I want you to go to him. Once Ananias had taken his doubts to the Lord, he was willing to go, but he wanted to be certain. God loves that kind of integrity. And third, his commitment was real enough to be obedient. When he was certain, when his doubts had been expressed, when the Lord had assured him that this is what he really should do, Ananias threw back his covers and pulled on his pants and took off down the street. I believe his heart was pounding and his knees were weak. I believe that the closer he got to the house on Straight Street, the more doubt came charging in on his consciousness. What kind of a wild goose chase am I on? Did I just have a weird dream or what? Why am I here? He had been told by the Lord that Saul is praying. He's my man. I have great plans for him. And that included witnessing to me before kings. Ananias would never get a chance to witness before kings. But Paul wouldn't have if Ananias hadn't touched him for Christ. That little church in Damascus had been praying too. They heard Saul was coming There were a lot of asylum seekers in that church in Jerusalem and in Damascus. I'm sure that they were praying like we probably would have. Lord, keep us safe. Lord, stop him somehow. Lord, send him down the wrong road. Lord, save us. I wonder if they had thought to pray, Lord, save him. So now Ananias steps hurry faster and faster until Ananias, the unknown, the nobody, breaks into a run towards Saul, the famous, the feared, the persecutor. And he enters the house on street called Straight, his hopes and fears all mixed up within him, his doubts returning, is this some kind of a crazy idea that I had in my mind? And there he sees in the darkness Saul. In his darkness, pray. 
And then to me, one of the most exciting verses of Scripture in this whole story. Verse 17. Ananias, placing his hands on Saul, Ananias said, Brother Saul. Can you beat that? Brother Saul. Ananias had this this body consciousness that we were one in the bonds of love. The differences between Ananias and Paul or Saul could not have been greater in terms of education or background or pedigree or walk with the Lord. Saul was just on the threshold of new life in Christ. Ananias was a disciple of some time. Body consciousness. We are one in the bonds of love. You know, we don't get to choose family members. I dare say there is not a single family in this congregation this morning that doesn't have a strange aunt. Or a rather bizarre uncle. I have mine. They make for good stories when a family gets together. But we don't choose. Christ chooses. He calls those he wants into his body, and they become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is that instant bond of love. When my children and my grandchildren have been born, and my wife and I have had the privilege of being in the delivery room, and the nurse hands me that baby, I do not get a book of instructions on how to love this child. I do not receive a lecture from the doctor on how and why to love this child. I do. I just do. That child is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We are one. Church, that's the way it's supposed to be in the body of Christ. And so when you look around, don't do it now, but when you look around at the strange people in this church, (laughs) please understand, they are your brother and sister in Christ. They may differ with you on all kinds of points of theology. I know some of them differ with me. That's all right. When we get to the glory, the Lord will straighten them out. But... (laughs) I want you to know that part of the joy of being in the body of Christ is the great, wonderful variety within the body of Christ that enriches our life and that gives us wonderful opportunities to serve him by serving one another. I hope you see the lesson for us today. To serve Christ is to touch our brothers and sisters Even the hostile and the hurting, the helpless, the hopeless, the hateful, the hungry, the rootless, and the restless, and the judgmental, and the jealous. That's our ministry within the body of Christ. And if we carry out that ministry within the body of Christ, it is our ministry to those outside who are watching. Behold how they love one another. Amen. Teach us, O Lord, 
that it's not enough to hear. You call us to do and to be. For Jesus' sake, amen.